Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. A reading from Isaiah 1, 10 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Naomi. Welcome to the promise of Isaiah. <laughs> we have been looking forward to this series for a long time. And uh, I want to give you two reasons why. First, when you get to the book of Isaiah, let's just say in Colorado uh, uh, language, we are on Mount Elbert, the highest peak. This is such beautiful and brilliant literature. In all the First Testament, there's no place to stand like Isaiah. In fact, uh, a scholar named John Oswald, he taught for years in Chicago. He devoted his entire academic career to the book of Isaiah. And in his two-volume commentary, over a thousand pages, here's how he starts. Of all the books in the Old Testament, Isaiah is perhaps the richest. Its literary grandeur is unequaled. Its scope is unparalleled. The breadth of its view of God is unmatched. In so many ways, it is a book of superlatives. Thus, it is no wonder that Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. And along with Psalms and Deuteronomy, one of the most frequently cited of all Old Testament books. Study of it is an opportunity for unending inspiration and challenge as we see a God whose holiness is made irresistible 
by his love. One of the things I would, um, I don't know if challenge is too strong a word, encourage you to do, is during the next two and a half months while we work our way through this amazing book, is to read it. Chapter a day, we'll get you there. So starting this week, if you'd read a chapter of Isaiah a day, that will prime the pump for you being here throughout the next eight, nine weeks. The other reason we've been looking forward to this book is because it's one of Jesus' favorites. It's the most quoted book on his lips. And if you read through the Gospels, what you see is that every pivotal turn, Jesus is leaning on Scripture, particularly the book of Isaiah. For instance, when Jesus has launched his public ministry, he goes back into Galilee where he grew up, and he's in his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes into the synagogue, and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. It, the text says that all the eyes are fixed on him. This you know, little toddler who grew up in front of our eyes, they give him the scroll, a significant honor, and Jesus opens it up, and he reads these words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the text says he rolled it back up and he said, today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine being there? Jesus loved Isaiah and lived Isaiah. And Jesus, I believe, for Waterstone in these next nine weeks, wants to say to us, you too. You too. Love Isaiah and live Isaiah. So, are you ready? Let me give some frame and background to the book to set up the next few weeks, and then we're going to jump into that flaming red smoking text that was read for us earlier and unpack that for our lives this week. Isaiah 1, verse 1, we get the historical frame. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. First we see it's a vision that what Isaiah is actually doing is giving uh, openings to reality and what's going on in the world and in the, the courts of heaven. And he's the chosen bridge. And what a bridge he is, by the way, as we'll talk in a minute. But he puts it into words and brings it to God's people, the role of a prophet. We don't know much about Isaiah. Uh, he's the son of Amos. We don't know who that is. In a couple weeks, two weeks, we'll see he has a little family drama. He has a wife and some kids, and we'll unpack that when we get to Isaiah 7 and 8. But other than that, we don't know anything about Isaiah. We know that he lived in the southern part of Israel, Judah and Jerusalem. In 722 BCE, before the Common Era, before Jesus came, I, uh, the northern ten tribes of Israel were carried into exile by the world power of Assyria. And so the ten northern tribes of Israel are gone. 
The only remaining remnant of Israel is Judah and their capital city, Jerusalem, and their kings. And these kings, uh, four kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah are the most consequential. They had long reigns and steady prosperous reigns as much as a puppet nation like Judah at this time could have. Um, But we know that the time period here is 750 BCE to 700, around a 50-year period. So that's the frame of what's going on. But just a little bit more context. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live in a nation where you were owned by someone else, essentially? At this point, Assyria, modern-day Iraq, They are in charge, they are the world power, they own Judah. And um, what's happening though is Assyria is beginning to decay as every world empire does and Babylon is on their heels and in a matter of about 50 more years, Babylon will be the world power. And already uh, Persia is on the heels of Babylon and uh, there's about to be a tumultuous 150 year period when world powers rise and and fall, and Israel is in the mix, except here's the distinct advantage that Judah has. (laughs) And it's quite an advantage. They have God whispering into their ear saying, Assyria's gonna fall, Babylon's gonna fall, Persia's coming. They have, through Isaiah and the prophets, an intercom. The troubling part of that, though, is that the prophets are saying Assyria is going to fall, Babylon's going to fall, but before they do, they're going to discipline you. They're going to get you back on mission. They're going to take everything from your life that's distracting you from being my people, and they'll get you on track. But it's going to hurt. But just so you know, Assyria is coming. Babylon's coming, Persia's coming. The inscrutable God impinges decisively on history. And sometimes that is unbearably harsh for the people of God. And sometimes it's astonishingly healing. Isaiah. Now, here's what you can expect over the next nine weeks. We're going to put some themes up here on the screen. And uh, every week, we're going to really yank and ring the bell on one of these themes, sometimes two, three, but you, you can count on this, that each week, first, you will encounter a vision of God. You see, the problem in our lives is that often our vision of God is conditioned by our culture. It's conditioned by our circumstances, like Barnabas on the bottom of a ship. Things latch onto us, and we think, oh, that's what God's like. And every week we're going to come in here, and Isaiah's going to have a putty knife and start scraping on your vision of God and saying, no, here's who God is. Here's who God is. He's majestic and authoritative. Here's who God is. He's emotional. He is passionate, compassionate, and angry and jealous for his people. And he is so sovereign in power, but yet so gracious and good that he stoops to love his people and get them back on mission in order to invite the world in to a relationship with God. This is who God is. 
So we will encounter him week after week. Secondly, the people of Israel are called to holiness. Because God is like no other, his people will uh, be like no other people on the face of the planet. God will want to make us like him. He is holy, holy, holy. We, his people, are called to be like no other kind of people. So let me... (laughs) Let me give a little pastoral word here about the next few weeks. I was reading last week through Hebrews 11, and Hebrews 11 is that great, they call it the Hall of Faith chapter where everyone is like honored uh, in the Hall of Fame, you know, Abraham, uh, uh, Isaac, Jacob, you know, all the great persons and personalities. You get to this one little verse near the end of the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, and you read this, then there were the prophets. And you think, wow, the prophets. They were sawed in half, thrown into broken cisterns, and um, stoned. Okay. Then you think, by whom? (laughs) By God's people. We're in for an interesting few weeks because we're going to sit under the word of a prophet. And prophets existed in Israel to define reality, who God is and what lasts. And that can be a very painful experience. In fact, I would put it this way, are you listening? If you don't leave some of these mornings mad then the preaching has been bad. Can you deal with that? Listen, the goal is not agreement. Agreement with Isaiah, to be sure, but agreement with how we're preaching Isaiah. The goal, I don't expect you to agree with the preaching team's kind of assessment on some controversial section, but that's not the goal. The goal is agitated assessment that causes repentance where needed. Can I say that again? Agitated assessment of your life that might cause repentance where needed. That's why we're in this book. Third, hope. We encounter God. We are challenged to be holy and then the motivation behind all of this is a vision where the promises of God are enacted through him sending a suffering servant from the line of David who is king. And this king will invade the earth now and then, then make all things new. If you ask me to capture the overriding message of the prophets, it would be this. The prophets exist so that God is always speaking in our ear. I will bring you home. Hope, a vision of the future that causes passion in the present. That's the prophets. That's what we can expect week after week as we go through. So let's jump in. Chapter one. Now, Before we look at the text that Naomi read for us, 
we come to Isaiah chapter 1, and we see that Isaiah, after he frames the history of it in the four kings, he kind of gives an update on the people of Judah. And he says, I think we have this on a slide, verse 2, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. So we see it's a vision in heaven. It's a, it's a law court in heaven where God is calling as his witnesses the heavens and the earth. And he's saying, I reared up children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. So God, like a father, has rebellious children. And then you go to verse 4. Woe to the sinful nation whose people, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. These are not very encouraging words about the people of God goes on in the next few verses to say, they are so sick and they're covered with wounds and there's no one to bandage them. And then verse seven, we, we see what's why. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners. In other words, read that verse and in one word, Assyria. Assyria is on the ground and you are being disciplined. Now we come to our text, verses 10 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So we pause there, and I want you to notice the deliberate choice of vocabulary by God to, what shall we say, excite his people? How would you feel being a Jew and having the Father in heaven call you ruler of Sodom, people of Gomorrah. What do you know about Sodom and Gomorrah? It was a place of immorality, godlessness. What do you know about the destiny of Sodom and Gomorrah? Should we say micro-global warming? How would you feel as the people of God if God addressed you in a worship service, in the call to worship, rulers of Sodom, people of Gomorrah, welcome? You'd think, uh-oh. We go on. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams, of the fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, when you appear before me, who's asked you this trampling of my courts, these words like trampling, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. And then it goes on, we don't have it up there, but on verse 14, he says, I hate it with all my heart, your worship. And then verse 15, when you spread out your hands to pray, all I see is blood. He's not talking there about the animal sacrifices. The priest did that. He's talking about his people bearing responsibilities for the injustice in their communities. All God sees when they pray is their responsibility. They've got blood on their hands. And here's the irony. The people of God, Judah, 
they actually think their worship's pretty good. Back earlier when it says the, the, the fat of fattened animals, that means that they were offering up to God fattened calves bought at Whole Foods without HMO in it. They were investing resources and money and time into their worship. Their hearts were engaged in worship. They were giving it their best. Let me put it in our language. They were going to Ash Wednesday service and getting the ashes. They were waving the palms on Palm Sunday. They were crying and taking communion on Good Friday. And they were saying, Christ is risen on Easter. And God's saying to them, but I hate it. Sarah Lloyd and I were talking last night about the timing of this could have been better, Lord, because we've just done a series on worship and asked you to put everything in your heart into this moment. And then Isaiah comes like a prophet and says, but there's one more thing to consider. Do you see the dissonance? Israel thought they were worshiping with all their hearts. And God is saying, with all my heart, I hate it. Welcome to Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah, what's missing? What is missing? You say you hate our worship even though, you know, we're here on time and we're giving it all and we're hoarse when we leave from singing. What's missing? Verses 16 and 17. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Nine verbs. Did you see that all the earlier verses, there was Hebrew, it's poetry, there's parallelism, it's repeated, I hate it, I hate it. The big idea of the previous five verses are I hate it but it's said in about 20 different ways because he wants us, that's the purpose of poetry, is to sit in an experience for a minute. But when he gets to what's missing, no more poetry, nine verbs. It's like a PowerPoint of action. Boom, 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 boom. And what's interesting is that these nine verbs are everywhere throughout Isaiah, throughout the whole First Testament. This, I, 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 let's call it a an Isianic cluster of verbs. And they're all like a bicycle spoked. They're all spoke to the one phrase, seek justice. Whenever you read the word seek justice in scripture, all these other verbs tend to follow. And it's everywhere, as you'll see in a moment in Isaiah. But let me just say right here, here's the point. We can worship our hearts out on Sunday. But if on Monday our hands are not seeking justice, we're not worshiping. Let me put it this way. If we have a spirit consciousness, I think we have that quote, Tara, sorry, I know I'm jumping ahead a bit. A spirit-sensitive conscience and hands in action to serve others 
especially the vulnerable, is the inevitable sign of faith and connection with God. No matter how hard we worship in here, if this next week our hands are not moving towards others, especially the vulnerable, we're not worshiping. So let's unpack for a moment what it means to seek justice, what Isaiah is wanting, these verbs. Now, um, I think there's a, a background to justice, biblical justice, and a foreground. The foreground is the verbs, and we'll look at that actual phrase, seek justice. What's behind every time that God mentions seek justice? By the way, 425 times in the First Testament. Justice. What's behind it, though? Why is it so important to God? Why is he always saying, seek justice? Well, I think what's behind it is God's love for people since creation and what he wants to give people, which he calls shalom. When we, which means what in English? Peace. When we tend to think of peace, we tend to think of the absence of conflict. And that's a part of it. But I think the biblical definition of peace is much richer, especially to include the presence of flourishing, human flourishing. God wants his world and every person he's created in his image to experience peace, flourishing in life. And his desire is shalom. In Isaiah 66, it talks about one day that the whole world will have a fabric of shalom. So let's use Isaiah's imagery there, a, a fabric of peace, of shalom. If I were to pull a thousand pieces of thread together and pack them in my hands and throw them down, what would that be? A mess. That would be a thousand pieces of thread not connected, everything doing their own thing, and it would be useless. But what if you started to pick up those threads and you started to weave them together over and under and around and through and over and under and around and through, over and under and around and through, every thread coming together and touching other threads in a hundred and hundreds of different places, what would that become? A fabric that can warm people and hold people and, and strengthen people. That's the imagery of shalom. And that's what God wants in his world. People to experience shalom, to be threaded together, to be warmed and held and, and uh, you know, lifted up by people practicing shalom. There's a great example of this in uh, Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, a book, by the way, that our elders have read and highly recommend. If you want to understand Waterstone, one of the books you should read is Generous Justice by Tim Keller. And in Keller's book, he talks about Martha's Vineyard. Anyone been there? Martha's Vineyard? Yeah. Well, Jen, I used to live out, out that way on Cape Cod. It's an island off the Cape. And um, if you were to have lived in Martha's Vineyard 150 years ago, the odds are you would have been bilingual. Here's why. 
When Martha's Vineyards was settled, most of the settlers came from a town in England called Kent. And Kent, back in the 1700s, had a high percentage of hereditary deafness. And so many of the people who lived in Kent were deaf. And they moved to Martha's Vineyard and settled. And because of the isolation of the island, they continued to propagate hereditary deafness, such that by the end of the 1800s into the early 1900s, one out of every 25 people living on Martha's Vineyard was deaf. Now, Keller came onto this through a book. It's Nora Ellen Grossi, G-R-O-C-E, and the book is called Everyone Here Spoke Sign Language. And what happened, the way that they lived together, shalom, was that everyone in Martha's Vineyard, even though they had the advantage of hearing, decided to disadvantage themselves, and they learned sign language. Here's what... Uh, uh, Grossi, the, the author of this book, discovered when she began to interview people. She asked what the, peop- the hearing people thought of the deaf people. We didn't think anything about them. They were just like everyone else. Grossi responded that it must have been necessary for everyone to write things down on paper in order to communicate with them. The man responded in surprise, no, you see everyone here is new sign language. The interviewer asked if he meant the deaf people's families. No, he answered. By the way, I lived in New England. I can hear them saying no. (laughs) Everybody in town, I used to speak it. My mother spoke it. Everyone spoke sign language, new sign language. Another interviewee said, those people weren't handicapped. They were just deaf. One other remembered the deaf, and this is so New England, (laughs) the deaf we're like everybody else, so I wouldn't be overly kind to them. <laughs> because they, they'd be sensitive to that. I would just treat them the way I treat everyone, which I guess in New England is unkindly. <laughs> do, you, do you see? Keller says, what had happened? Here's shalom. Here's what's behind every time God says seek justice. What had happened was that an entire community had disadvantaged itself in mass for the sake of a minority. Instead of making the non-hearing minority learn to read lips, the whole hearing majority learned to sign. Shalom is God's heart for his people, for his world. So that's the background. The foreground is the actual use of the words seek justice. It's the Hebrew expression mishpat. Mishpat, there's your Hebrew for the day. There's 2,000 verses in the scriptures that speak of seeking justice and caring for the poor. 2,000 verses. The word mishpah occurs 425 times in the First Testament. It's in 31 of 39 First Testament books. It's 42 times in Isaiah. And here's what mishpah means. Here's what it means to seek justice. To take action. Action. Hands. To take action for someone made in God's image who isn't flourishing. 
to take action for someone made in God's image who isn't flourishing. So we see this throughout the entire range of Scripture, this mishpat. So go to Isaiah 58. We see it again, one of the most, we read this passage, by the way, at our Ash Wednesday service. So this may sound familiar to you. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the change of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter and to see the naked, to clothe them? You can hear Jesus quoting Isaiah here, um, you know, how it formed him, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So here's an interesting thing here from this text. It says the wanderer, the poor wanderer. And in our language, that would be a refugee or an immigrant. He's saying to his people, treat the refugee or immigrant, make sure they have shelter, make sure they have clothing. <laughs> and this is like mind-blowing. Not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. They're not my own flesh and blood. We're not blood-related. We're from a different background. They, they're, they're outside of Israel. They're not my blood. God says, Mishpat says they are. God says, you will treat them like your own flesh and blood. God says, I'm not asking you to put a check in the mail, although you should. I'm asking actually to sound the table with them. They're your family. That word, share your food, in Hebrew is not just make sure they have food. It's to actually wait on the table. Like, you're the one serving the food. God desires a deep connection, hands, with the vulnerable of the world. You go on to Proverbs, you read verses like this. We preached through the Proverbs a few years back. I was amazed at how many times verses like this come up. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. You see, it's all grounded in people being made in God's image. Whoever is kind to, whoever's kind to the needy honors God. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will reward them for what they have done. And then you come to the verses, let's be honest, that in our culture are so hard to read. Jesus' words in Matthew 25, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty, give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes to clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, there's the family thing, again, of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. These are the people who didn't do those things. You are cursed and into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In the foreground is this word mishpat, and it's at the center of God's heart. He wants our hands taking action to, uh, to serve the oppressed, the widow, the orphan. And let's Expand that to who's falling through the fabric of our culture, who's not threaded in, who is not flourishing in our culture. People like single parents, people like children born in poverty, people like refugees and immigrants, and I don't care 
Here we go. You're going to leave. I don't care what their status is. That's for the government to figure out, and they never will. But the person in front of you who's a refugee and an immigrant, they need to be threaded in. Because it even says, okay, you're pushing. It even says, well, we're after the prisoners too. We're after the illegals. Who else? Who else isn't threaded in? People struggling with gender dysphoria. People struggling with sexual identity. Now, Jesus wants to help them, and he'll help them in his way. But for us, we don't first judge the outside world, and second, if they're not threaded in, they need to be threaded in. God cares for them. They are made in his image, and we seek justice for them. We could continue the list. I would put age on there in our culture. Both people dying unvisited and unknown in nursing homes and babies being killed in the womb. They need to be threaded in. I'm sure you could add some people to the list as well. Mental illness. God's concern is that they are threaded in. I, I once heard Tim Keller talk, and he preached in New York City, in Manhattan. He was talking about pockets in New York City where children cannot read. And you know if a child is illiterate, by the time they reach 14, 15, they're probably going to drop out of high school, and they will be left behind with the market and with viable employment opportunities, and circles will, will um, you know, reproduce themselves. And illiteracy is just a scourge. And so, you know, we look at this, and by the way, we have schools struggling in Jefferson County that don't have enough resources and are struggling, and kids are struggling with reading and learning. So what do we do? Well, the liberal consensus comes together and says, well, we just need to give them more money. Would you pass for crying out loud a bond issue? Well, I thought I'd get an amen from some of the time. <laughs> and then the, rep the, the conservatives come from the other side and say, well, that's not even the problem, and why are we throwing so much money in a broken system? It's the breakdown of the family, and it's standards in school. And I thought I'd get an amen out of that. <laughs> and here's what no one is saying. Nobody is saying it's the kid's fault. The eight-year-old is not sitting there saying, well, I think I'll just move to a better school district. The eight-year-old is not confronting his parents and saying, parents, you need to read to me. And here's what each and every one of us knows deep down, that if that eight-year-old child was under our roof being raised in our ways, that they would stand a three to 400% better chance of being literate and moving on into flourishing life. We know it. And it speaks to the inequities, the unbearable inequities in our culture, in our world around us. And what Isaiah is saying is that you may worship me on Sunday with all your heart, but on Monday, if your hands aren't tracing out those rips in the fabric somewhere and getting involved and coming alongside eight-year-old kids 
and helping them learn to read, or pick any one of a hundred other things where the fabric is ripped, let me put it this way. If we are not sharing the incredible advantages we have in our lives, then that is not only stingy, that is unjust. How you doing out there? Feeling guilty? I've been a pastor for almost 40 years. And I've learned something. Guilt is a terrible motivator because it doesn't last. My goal here is not guilt. My goal here is agitated assessment so there might be areas in our lives where we need to repent. (laughs) So how do we do it? How do we have that agitated assessment? Three things as we wrap up. First, let's get serious. Look at Isaiah 118, (laughs) this verse that is on so many wall plaques that people have no idea what it means. (laughs) They don't know the context. Come now, let's settle the matter, says the Lord. (laughs) It could be translated, let's get serious. What God wants us to do is take an assessment of our lives. Let's get serious. Let's talk about this. Are there things that need adjusted? I know you're worshiping hard on Sundays, but what's your Monday look like? Let's get serious. But here's the mistake that we could make. Gospel hands. I think the mistake we could make is, okay, I'm going to worship hard and attend church and, you know, do good on Sunday and I'm going to um, be a moral person. I'm going to stop doing wrong and do what's right. And, oh, I see, so the missing link you're telling me is justice. I just need to sign up and start working in a food pantry or a soup kitchen, and, you know, I get some justice in my world. And then I'll be good with God, and it'll take me to heaven, right? That would be a mistake. Why? Because that's why Jesus was so upset with his religious pastors. All you're doing is putting rules on people, and you're saying that we we just do things to make us better people and get us to heaven. It's a religion of works and doing good. And that's what gets people not to heaven, but to hell. It's not about just adding more good things to do in your life. It's about having a new heart, a changed life. Why? Because you have invited Jesus into your heart and he gives you a new heart. And because Jesus loved the poor and his Holy Spirit now lives in you, you love the poor. That's where this comes from. That's the source. I like in Isaiah 1.8, notice where it says, you know, um, like wool and like snow. The commentators are quick to point this out. That wool and snow are one of the few things in the world that are naturally white. The source is white. And what Jesus and Isaiah are saying is, I don't want you to just start doing good things for the poor. I want you to have a new heart. And from that new heart, you'll be drawn to the poor. It's it's like in college, I had to take this fine arts course, which I hated. You know, and at that time, you're 20 years old and you just gotta do it to get the diploma. You gotta pass the class get a job. So to do that, I had to listen to hours of Bach and Mozart 
and handle when I would have rather Cash been listening to Rolling Stone and Jethro Tall. <laughs> Google them. <laughs> but guess what? Through hours of listening to Handel and Bach and Mozart, I don't know, something got a hold of my heart. There was like a, a new appreciation for a different kind of music and actually like really, really deep, good music such that for 40 years, I've actually been paying money now to listen to Handel every Christmas. When the beauty of Jesus gets inside of you, you are wrecked. You are a person seeking justice. Why? Because you, you begin to figure out that God not only, like said, we should take care of the poor. He actually so identified with the poor that to know Jesus and love him is to love the poor. Why? Well, Jesus, like, he was born in a cattle trough. He, he his parents came to offer him when he was 40 days old and dedicate him. They offered the, the lowest offering there was because they were peasants. And then he had to run from uh, Jerusalem to escape Herod, and he lived as a refugee child in Egypt for two years or more. And then he was like, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, a borrowed donkey, and he said that his whole life he was a homeless man, like the shoulders of the world sat on a homeless man. And then he uh, had his last meal in a borrowed room. And he hung on a criminal's cross, and he was buried in a borrowed grave. Jesus not only loved the poor, he was the poor. He identified with the poor. And so to love him is to love the poor. And then it even goes deeper than that, because we understand that he not only identified with the poor, he died for the poor, for you. And I, he died for us. And to the degree that we understand that grace is the degree that we worship hard on Sundays and worship with our hands on Mondays. Get connected. There's a button on our website that you can sign up for. It's under the uh, Serve Local. It's called the Serve Local Alert. And Kylie Waters gets these opportunities from our nonprofits down in the city or in Littleton. Every week we have stuff to do where you can go and sit at a table with an oppressed, an orphan, or a widow, or anyone who's not threaded into our fabric of peace. And you can get these emails. You don't have to ever respond to them unless you want to engage. And we can get more involved in seeking justice. Let's pray together. Lord. Wow, Isaiah, here we are, being formed by this book that so formed Jesus. Our first instinct is to say, Lord, show us where we need to engage. I know so many at Waterstone, we're a church known for seeking justice, but yet, Lord, we're always asking, what's next, what's more? Most merciful God, the Book of Common Prayer says, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved you, our neighbor, as ourself. 
We have sinned against you in thought and word and deed, both by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. Strengthen our hearts by your gospel and how you've loved us so that we could delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of God the Father. Amen.